Stay tuned for The Turning Point with Mike Fader. This is Mike Fader. Just come back from uh, a two-week vacation in Maine, and I discovered to my shock that even though I was on vacation, the rest of the world has not been on vacation, <clears throat> and things are continuing to happen. Uh, one of which is, and you'll all be familiar with this, no doubt, is that all the teachers' walkouts that have occurred in the last few weeks in West Virginia, Kentucky, and Oklahoma, and most recently in Arizona and Colorado. Uh, among other things, these states, uh, what they have in common is that they are very red states, generally Republican and conservative. Uh, they're places where Trump did very well in the 2016 election. And they're states that have long been controlled, long time, by extremely conservative Republican legislatures and governors. And for a long time now, they've been cutting taxes. 
these tax cuts have resulted in some of the lowest teacher salaries in the country and uh, also the lowest levels of funding for education. These walkouts that the teachers are doing now, which are sort of revolutionary, considering where they're happening, uh, they have very deep and wide historical roots in terms of class differences and income inequality. Uh, and that's what we're going to talk about today. We have a guest today, Steve Fraser, who is a historian and a writer. He's uh, the author of The Age of Acquiescence, among other books. And he has just recently published a book called Class Matters, The Strange Career of an American Delusion. Thanks for coming on today, Steve. Well, thanks for having me. What is actually, I mean, before we talk about the, the, the precise uh, topic from today, and by the way, this is uh, based on an article I read that Steve wrote on, on uh, Tom Dispatch called Class Dismissed, Class Conflict in Red State America. Um, the book, Class Matters, what, what is this delusion you're talking about? The central delusion, I think, of much of American history and probably even today, although the strikes would suggest otherwise, is that we were founded as, that is, America, the new world, was founded as a land beyond class that would abolish class, that even if initially there were classes, they were going out of existence, that the kind of limitless opportunity allegedly provided by the bounty of uh, this new world um, uh, would, would produce and had produced a classless society unlike the old world from which it was derived, which was, of course, ridden by uh, class and class conflict. And this has informed um, uh, the kind of central mythos of American history and contemporary American culture for a long time. So what I set out to do in this book was to illustrate how even at, at those moments when class to most people seems to have nothing to do with the matter, it really did. That is to say, in the early settlements of the of the new continent by uh, at, at Jamestown and uh, at Plymouth, in the battle to adopt the uh, Constitution that founded the new nation, in some of our favorite myths, like about the cowboy who sort of is supposed to embody the rugged individualist, self-reliant, uh, uh, independent, and, and free of any class entanglements. Uh, that's that romantic vision of the cowboy. Um, I talk about uh, the um, Statue of Liberty, uh, which uh, was erected presumably to welcome the huddled masses, presumably immigrant masses, to the New World, but whose actual origins are quite different and had to do with a fear of those huddled masses streaming into the New World from abroad. And I talk about the I Have a Dream speech, one of the great uh, perhaps the greatest next to the Gettysburg Address uh, of our uh, speech of our uh, political uh, uh, history, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which is premised on the notion that all men are created equal and that America has to realize that promise, but that left out of account, and as uh, decades since have proven, that political equality did not mean economic and social equality. Um, so I, I look at all of those instances as stories about how class really did matter, even though we are committed to the delusion that it didn't. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously up until this very uh, moment that we're speaking. In terms right. Of, you know, um, right. Well, I think, because uh, I remember just a little bit about this. I remember, you know, going back uh, when I was in high school, and uh, this is a long time ago now, you know, talking about uh, <laughs> talking about the, uh, the late 50s and the early 60s. Um, it was an unusual teacher back then 
who is mentioning anything about this. In fact, they probably would have thrown out of the school as a communist. You know, they to... they would have been. And in fact, that reminds me of the only chapter I left out of my description, which is about you probably remember this, or you may not be quite old enough. I remember it: the kitchen debate between Richard Nixon, who was then vice president in 1959, mm-hmm. and Khrushchev. Sure. Uh, and that kitchen debate was Nixon's effort to prove that America was a class society. That in an ironic sort of way, it was America. That had realized the communist dream of classlessness, uh, and they debated this out, the premier and the, and the vice president. And of course, to talk about class, just as you mentioned back in the 1950s, was verboten. It was anti-American to do that and suspiciously red. You would immediately get uh, tainted with uh, uh, that kind of uh, label as being uh, uh, subversive red if you talked about class. And it was the epitome of this belief that America had, su- had superseded class conflict. I, yeah, I noticed. I don't want to wander too far afield, but obviously it's a fascinating concept, and I'm going to be reading the book um, uh, one thing I noticed immediately in that uh, that traumatic uh, circus that was the White House Correspondents Association. <laughs> yeah, uh, in the beginning speech, uh, her beginning speech, introducing everything, the uh, president of the White House Correspondents Association said that uh, you'll notice in our audience today uh, we are uh, diverse in every way, including class. Yeah. Did you notice she said economic? She said actually said economic class, and I'm looking at all these people <laughs> with their gowns and their black ties. And right, right. What world is this? So obviously, your book is uh, based on uh, a long time history and the reality of current things. Uh, as far as this uh, class dismissed, class conflict in red state America, um, can you describe what's happening right now? Actually, the facts of uh, what's happening with the teachers in these states now, and these and very red states. Yeah. Yeah, that's the the interesting thing. Certainly these red states are places that presumably eschew any notion of class and class conflict, but your introduction was very good. I mean, these these states, because they're dominated by both conservative politicians and, in many cases, very powerful business interests, interests like the Koch brothers paying Oklahoma, um, these are states which have systematically – uh, starved uh, the public sector generally, including the school system, cut taxes uh, of all kinds while all, often giving tax breaks and subsidies and exemptions to major corporate interests, not daring to touch, say, in Oklahoma, the energy industry and the oil industry, which, uh, where, which is taxed in that state at lower rates than any other state in the union. So they have, they have, they have uh, starved the, the public sector, and, and as a consequence, this is called austerity. And presumably, austerity is supposed to help everybody, but what it's really done is to punish everybody except uh, what we now fondly call the 1%. Uh, teachers are among that, that world of, you know, teachers often think of themselves or thought of themselves as middle class, both because they were educated and because they expected a kind of decent middle class income and style of life. That has been mythic for a long time, but particularly so in these red states where the salaries of these teachers are somewhere in the neighborhood from the lowest in the low 40s, the average salary, to maybe $50,000 a year. Often teachers in these states begin in the lower mid-30s, $1,000 a year. Um, Their their pension and health care benefits and other kinds of 
vital uh, fringe benefits are minimal. Meanwhile, they're teaching in impossible conditions in schools that are falling apart, don't even have heat in some cases, don't have running water, uh, uh, decrepit buildings, antiquated textbooks, no computers or computers that are so out of date they don't, they're really not functional anymore. The teach, these teachers who are often scapegoated for the dilemma that our whole national education system are in mm-hmm. actually commit daily acts of self-sacrifice in order to provide a functional classroom. They, they bring in supplies which the state or the municipality is not uh, supply. Even things as simple as paper, mm-hmm. uh, or even in some cases, I think this was in Oklahoma, and I'm not sure, even toilet paper, believe it or not, uh, which they, this particular school in Oklahoma didn't have enough of. Uh, and, and these are people who, um, just as far as the facts of what's going on right now, uh, people who are, some of them have two or even three jobs. Yes, absolutely. To, to, in order to, to make going. ends meet, they they work as as uh, waitresses or they they work uh, you know as car car uh, 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 drivers, uh, yeah. uh, car drivers. Yeah. They they work as little league umpires. Believe it or not, to pick up a few bucks just to make ends ends meet. Aren't uh, they? Uh, can I interrupt for a second? Yeah, sure. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, aren't they? Um, Aren't they really caught in the same thing? that Because I remember when I was, again, back when I was uh, going to school, the teachers were considered, of course, in those days, of course, teachers, it would have been shocking if they were not to, if they were to walk outside the school with a picket line or right. a sign. I mean, it would have been uh, something from science fiction. But, but teachers were considered middle class generally. Um, and it may have been a myth back then, and maybe you could, uh, you know, inform me about that. Yes, I think it's always been a myth. It's a, it's a consoling one uh, no. to at least think of yourself as middle class, even though uh, your actual material conditions of life and really the the social respect that you either get or fail to get suggests that you're really not middle class. And I think what's happened more recently, and not just in these red states, but all over the country, is that teachers have been compelled to realize that Pardon the expression, they're more like proletarians than a word that was abolished from the national vocabulary back in the 1950s, than they are middle class. And this is a shocking thing, and and you're right, it's extremely unusual to think of teachers, who we think of as the epitome of law-abiding, respectable middle-class folk, walking out of their classrooms, demonstrating, rallying, and so on. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a testimony to how desperate the situation has become for these teachers in these red states and elsewhere, and also how brave they are. You know, uh, it, it take, a lot of these strikes are technically illegal. Many well, wait, these, now, now let, me, let me clarify that. Are these teachers, these, a lot, most of these teachers who we're talking about are in some form of a union or an organization, but are they actually striking or are they walking out? In some cases, they're striking, and in some cases, they're demonstrating. And it's a, you know, only a lawyer could, uh, Mm. and one with Jesuit training could uh, define exactly what the difference is. But, uh, right, they do, some of them have unions, although these unions have been, uh, because they're in these red states, notably without much power or influence. And many of these strikes, particularly, say, in West Virginia, took place in defiance of their own union leadership, which was had been, look, many people are sort of cowed by the power of these Republican legislatures, uh, fearful that they would be penalized, fearful that uh, the union, what 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 existed of the union would be ruined uh, by a strike. I'm not I'm not 
trying mm-hmm. to call these people cowardly, but they had fears, and and the the, the rank and file of these of these uh, of these organizations often went out, whether they walked out or struck or exactly what they were doing, in defiance of their own uh, leadership. This is also an extraordinary thing. The only time really that this has happened before uh, under union leadership was back in the late 1960, mid and late 1960s, early 1970s, which is when most of these teacher unions really were able to gain a foothold in some states, uh, New York, obviously, and, and many other northeastern states and elsewhere elsewhere in the country. Um, and, and the teachers were in the vanguard then of leading uh, the organization of public sector workers generally, all mm-hmm. kinds of uh, people who work in the public sector. Uh, and, and they're still powerful institutions say, in, in New York or, or elsewhere. But in these states, they were extremely weak. Well, I, I noticed what happened. Uh, I mean, everybody, I think, remembers what happened not so long ago uh, with, uh, with Wisconsin, you know, right. with the, with the uh, public employees in Wisconsin. And that was part, it seemed to be the beginning of a, uh, of a wave of uh, anti-government employee feeling uh, by a lot of voters, especially that's, in the Midwest and other places. That's right. I mean, what you see here is a kind not only of, of austerity as a kind of material punishment, but also a kind of cultural cruelty in the scapegoating of people who devote their lives. Some are good, some are bad, but what they're doing is a vital social function. They're educating our young, and yet somehow they became the the poster boy for failed government in general. Uh, They were to blame for all the ill. It's so easy to scapegoat somebody who's relatively weak or sometimes who you resent because they have some bit more power than you do because they're in a union and mm-hmm. therefore they can they can win a decent wage they can win a decent pension plan and so on so you you turn on them under the leadership of conservative elites and you say they're the real villains of the peace these very same people who are breaking their backs to educate your kids are the reason your kids aren't getting educated they're selfish they uh, you know they have too much power and so on so was not 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 only that but they get two months off every they summer. Get to, what, right, what are they, they complaining yeah. right they right two months off in the yeah. summer, and so on. So you want to strip them of tenure. You want to strip them of their union protections. That's which is what began, as you noted, in Wisconsin under Scott Walker, um, and which has spread to you know. Uh, 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 all, in fact, there's a Supreme Court case that is going to be ruled on. I think in June called the Janus case against the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, which will may make it very difficult for public sector unions generally, not just teachers' unions, to really exist. Uh, I, I can go into the intricacies of that if you like, but it's a, it's a vital Supreme Court case, which given the conservative nature of the Supreme Court is likely to go against these public sector unions. That's bad to hear. Yeah. Uh, in, in the... Um in the piece, in the Tom Dispatch piece, you write about acquiescence and austerity. Maybe right. you could describe what you mean by that. Yeah, well, austerity is what I've just been talking about, the, 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 uh, the, the, the starving of the public sector, uh, cutting of taxes, uh, on the one hand, tax favors to, to the powerful, the rich, and corporate interests. Um, uh, and in all of these red states where these strikes have taken place are also the sites of the most severe cuts in the public's in public spending generally and particularly in spending on education 
acquiescence, I wrote a book called The Age of Acquiescence, and its thesis is this, that for a long time in American history, say from 1870 to 1970, very, very roughly, Mm -hmm. we were a country full of rebellious instincts, movements, uh, speeches, vocabulary that didn't take for granted that the 1% should rule. So that in the 19th century, we had the populist movement and the Knights of Labor as a radical labor organization that organized millions of workers. Uh, There was the, during the New Deal, of course, as many of your listeners may know or even remember, uh, there was a very powerful labor movement founded among industrial workers in America. The New Deal, as a consequence, passed all kinds of civilizing reforms uh, to, to check the power of business interests and to give the right to organize and engage in collective bargaining to working people. These, these are the hallmark achievements of the New Deal and were the consequence of mass insurgency and rebelliousness. Mm-hmm. Beginning around 1970, roughly, that all that tended to come to an end. The 60s was perhaps the last period of, of uh, uh, social and political upheaval. And then we entered a period of what I characterizes acquiescence to the rule, and in fact fell in love with the rule of the 1%. Fell in love with, right. Well, yeah, like the 1980s and 1990s was a kind of period of, you know, that's Reagan America, kind of uh, uh, a kind of adulation of the free market, a kind of worshipful attitude towards the conquistadors of high finance, you know, guys like Michael Milken or Ivan Boesky and, and, you know, Goldman Sachs was leading the way to a stronger America. Um, you know, this is, the, this is the period during which the inequality of wealth and income grow, grows by leaps and bounds. Uh, oh, don't, don't, don't Americans still worship at that same altar? I mean, they, they, it, they, it may be connected with uh, celebrity now, but it's still the same thing. Right. right? In fact, these, these, these super rich people became celebrities. That right. became the kind of thing you, you were to emulate. And, and for a period of time, when, especially during, up to the dot-com collapse, everybody was a speculator. You know, they'd be trading on the market. Everybody loved Wall Street and so on, all that kind of thing. And, and, and to this, that has a, that look, that persuasion goes deep into the roots of American history. It's part of why we believe ourselves to be a classless society. But it took some body blows, especially with the great, the near financial collapse of 2008 and the deep recession that followed. And consequently, since then, there have been various signs that that acquiescence, although still many people not only acquiesce, but even love this kind of free market, free-booting economy. Others have fallen out of love with it. The Bernie Sanders phenomenon is a very good indication that at least for some people, that no longer, that myth no longer sells, no longer has traction. Uh, these teacher strikes are another indication of that. The Occupy Wall Street movement, however brief and uh, uh, it was, and without any long-lasting effects, except that it changed the cultural conversation for a while and spotlighted the 1% and their inordinate power over our political as well as our economic life. These are all signs that that myth, however much traction it certainly still does possess, is being challenged. And I think this, this latest wave of strikes in red state America is, is a very good indication of that because it's the least likely place you would think to have this happen. Now, I think uh, following up on what you're saying, uh, one, when you look at the, the last, elec- last presidential election, <clears throat> one of the reasons, among many others, that uh, Hillary Clinton did not get elected was an antipathy towards her uh, based on the fact that she was solidly and is solidly hooked in 
to uh, to this um, celebration of being rich. Yeah, you know what exactly I mean? she, she, right. She is seen as somebody who is connected to the richest people, who uh, makes $400,000 talking to a bunch of bankers for an hour. That's one of the reasons why people... Uh, People turn their backs on her or wouldn't vote for her or voted against yes, her. Yes, I, I, I believe that's absolutely true. And why an avowed socialist, I mean, this is a word you just don't use in America, an avowed socialist like Bernie Sanders could actually mount a serious challenge to the anointed one. I mean, she was had already been anointed by the Democratic right. Party long before the primaries began. And yet he's able, and who knows what might have happened had not this kind of a Clinton campaign skullduggery taken mm-hmm. place to undermine the Sanders campaign. And I think you're right. My bet is, we'll never know, that Bernie Sanders would have beaten Donald Trump. And while Clinton was the only Democratic candidate who could have lost to Donald Trump (laughs) and did lose to him for the reasons you're indicating. And it's another reason why we live in a strange country. Uh, I think Donald Trump is himself, or his campaign is itself an indication of the loosening of this myth, because I remember during the primaries, there'd be these stories that would appear recurrently in, in, in the papers and on, on, on TV, that many people were undecided, should I vote for, this was during the primary campaign, right. should I vote for Donald Trump or should I vote for Bernie Sanders? Because in their eyes, Sanders, uh, Trump represented his own strange, albeit very strange, protest against the establishment, the world that Clinton represented. You know, he was denouncing big businessmen and so on. There's been a wave of, you know, but the, but that, but, but he was just selling utter nonsense. He was nonsense. selling. He was. But, he but was and still, yeah, but I mean, people are still buying it. He has 40 million followers on his uh, tweets. Yes. You know. And I th- what I'm saying is I think some of that following, however diluted that following may be, is what they're buying is his pur- purported uh, rebelliousness against, in his case, the Republican establishment, who did hate him. They, came, they, came, they hated him. Mm-hmm. They did everything they could to defeat him. Uh, he's a fraud. Obviously, he's a fraud. And, and, and what he's done in office will do nothing to help the working people he was allegedly championing. It's what I call populist plutocracy. That's what, that's what uh, Trump represented. But what I'm saying in, in, in pointing to it is that it's another rather perverse indication that the old myth has, is, 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 is shaky. Mm. Um, mm. And, and, uh, and uh, I think uh, Sanders was speaking to some of that same disbelief that's growing in the country. Not to go off too much in another direction like this, but <clears throat> speaking of something like Sanders, he's really too old to run again now. I think and so, yeah. So the the Democrats are having the same kind of civil war that they the are. Republicans are having, right? They are. They absolutely are. And, and that civil war took place during the primaries, obviously, and they went. To, the, the Clinton people went to great lengths to, once they realized they had a serious challenger on their hands, they did what they could to subvert him, and they succeeded. And that that struggle continues for who who is really going to control the heart and soul of the Democratic Party. Is it this new wave of Sanders rebelliousness, which grips the imagination, particularly of young people, and all kinds of other people, or is it going to be the the old guard, which got us into this situation, this bipartisan, neoliberal uh, old guard, which is perfectly comfortable with the rule of the 1%. When I, when I look at Schumer and I look at Pelosi, uh, Pelosi, I just feel like going to sleep. Yeah, you know I mean, it's just, right. and I think a lot, lot, right, a lot of people do, and that's why there's, well, it's, you said it, I mean, that's why Clinton 
did as poorly as she did, and I think is, uh, you know, and she was so, she so epitomized that world. You know, other people who might have run might have believed the same thing she did, but without epitomizing it so, so, so vividly and conspicuously. Getting Uh, getting back to the whole idea of uh, what these teachers represent in terms of uh, what they're showing, Basically, what you're talking about is um, a delusion that started from the very beginning right. of the colon, the original colonizers, the original, yeah. you know, immigrants here, but uh, and and continues right up until this time. Um, what happens to this society if you uh, if we continue in the way we're going? We're going to have uh, something that they're less seen in the 19th century or even in a monarchy or something like that. We'll have a, a very small group at the top. And then we'll have uh, no middle class if that's the way we're headed. I mean, well, that kind is of, the way we're headed. So, so what happens to our society or to a society? I mean, because um, this is happening all over the world, not just here. That's correct. It's certainly. Uh, so what happens? What is the future of, of the country <laughs> well, uh, if it has no middle class? I, I, I'm a historian, so I'm not a prophet. But, but I, you know, we're all entitled to speculate. What well, the great fear in my uh, opinion is that we get the kind of fascism that uh, uh, the world suffered so much from in the mid 20th century, and it's beginning uh, to suffer from right now. It's beginning yeah. to suffer yeah. from now all across uh, Eastern Europe, and not just Eastern Europe. Uh, uh, there, these and and Trump is is part of that phenomenon. Right. This is a right. it, it takes advantage of of populist resentment and bends it to the right, directs it against powerless scapegoats, whether they're ethnic minorities or women or or uh, racial minorities or school teachers or you know or uh, or yeah. yet again the Jews or the Jews the absolutely yeah. uh and that's my great fear uh and um and uh it's a contest and there's no no way to predict with any certitude the outcome of that contest it's beholden on all of us who value democracy and equality uh, to build the movements that are really mounting a resistance, not the Clinton Democratic Party, but that wing of the, San- the, the Sanders Democratic Party or outside that party, uh, a movement that can uh, can really uh, challenge uh, a principled movement that uh, which I think has the potential for great support. But, you know, um, one one deceptive thing about the one percent and the ninety nine percent is never ever <laughs> in history or will it ever be true in the future that one percent of the population will be for something and ninety nine percent it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. There, there, but if we can mount it, you know, even the most successful movements, say labor movements, often represent <clears throat> substantial, healthy, but nonetheless minority sections, and they lead the way. And 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 I think that's what we got to do: build a robust enough mass movement. Most people are, are bystanders uh, to political life. Mm-hmm. In our country, more and more, because we're all cynical about the political system, whether you're on the right or the left, quite frankly, everybody is cynical about it for good reason. Uh, it's a bought and paid for, you know, oligarchy that runs things. There's no popular or virtually little popular participation in the actual policy making and decision making. So people abstain out of you know, it's like a, they, they look at the electoral system as a bad joke, and in many ways it is. The question is, how do you turn that kind of passive cynicism into something more active and uh, rebellious? And I'm not sure anybody knows how you do that exactly. I and don't sometimes, know. so let me just say this: sometimes it happens without us 
even being ready for it. And I think the, the red state teacher strikes are a good indication of yeah, that. Yeah, that's, that's what's so encouraging to see that, because they, they just erupt seemingly out of the blue. Out, out of the blue, yeah. absolutely. And uh, so that's, that's, that's my hope that that will continue, spread, and, uh, and uh, we'll see. Well, I hope so, too, because uh, when you see something like uh, when all these students across the country uh, were, uh, and I say were, and I hate to use that word because it's past tense, uh, you know, out on the streets and demonstrating about um, about the gun, you know, laws. Right. Um, you could see it right now. It's on the wane. I mean, what we also have to absolutely f- yep. what we have to fight in this country. I don't know if this is so new either. It's just the uh, the technology is new. I mean, once upon a time, you with this this comparison you were making earlier with the one percent and then the ninety nine percent goes along and it's bent to the right, and you could see that in Hitler's Germany. Right. Uh, a perfect example, yep. uh, which I use all the time, which seems <clears throat> unfortunately parallel in some ways to what's going on <clears throat> in this country right now. What they had then, uh, and this is the other part of all this, is the the cultural part, which is uh, Hitler figured out a way, him and his gang figured out a way to uh, entertain people. Right. Right. And they had these mass rallies and all these uniforms and great big bonfires and uh, what do we have now is we have everybody in the country staring into their device and perhaps right. not even knowing who's running for any office. Right. Or, and or they are looking at Trump as a form of entertainment that yes. kind of plays to their fantasies yeah. and their resentments. He echoes it. He echoes what is a reasonably grounded uh, hostility towards the old order, the established and uses it and twists it and, 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 and caters to people's most uh, uh, brutal instincts uh, to scapegoat and, and so on. And that is, that is uh, very, uh, very, very scary. That's very scary. You know, you know I, I, I always cite this example. You talk about Hitler. Back in, in 1932, just before Hitler takes power, um, it, it, both the on the one hand the, the socialist and Demo- and communist parties in Germany were very powerful right. so was the nazi party very powerful and that actually it, they actually competed for members because what they were doing was both both of them were trying to draw on the justifiable anger that a lot of German working people, lower middle class people, felt for what was going on and what the government was doing or failing to do. In fact, get this, socialists and communists sometimes held joint rallies with the Nazi party back then, and Mm -hmm. then... Two days later, they'd be killing each other in the streets. Um, it, that's the kind of thing. It's, it's, a, it's a very complex situation where you're trying to use the anger of people that's perfectly understandable and move it in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, <clears throat> but lots of things remain to be seen. That's so, for sure, yes. Um, yeah. Well, today my guest has been Steve Fraser, and he's the uh, author of The Age of Acquiescence, among other books. He's a historian, and his latest book is called Class Matters, The Strange Career of an American Delusion. Well, thanks for coming on. Thank you very much, Mike. Okay, thank you. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? They say in Harlan County, there are no neutrals there. 
You'll either be a union man or a thug for J.H. Blair. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Tell me, which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? <clears throat> My daddy was a miner, and I'm a miner's son. He'll be with you, fellow workers, until this battle's won. Tell me which side are you on? Which side are you on? Sing it! Which side are you on? Which side are you on? Oh, workers, can you stand it? Unions. Unions have been in disfavor in this country for a long time, and it's complicated. But there was a time <clears throat> when to be in a union was a glorious thing. Uh, and maybe there are a lot of people are fed up with unions from the inside. I mean, I know there are unions that I'm familiar with myself that uh, unions now can often be corrupt themselves. There are people in unions who uh, who are officers of unions or officers of locals of unions who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars themselves and who are corrupt and who are, have been seen to be taking bribes from the management and don't do a damn thing and are as close to the management as, um, you know, as, uh, as they can be. So people are cynical, not just about uh, the society or politics in general, but about their own unions. Um, how many unions? Are, are, are you in a union? Have you been in a union? Uh, there are people who run uh, not just national unions, but uh, large local locals of national unions who make, um, you know, two, three, four, five times, six times, seven times as much as the workers that they represent. And they don't even represent them very well. This is um, this is something that also has gotten antique in a way. This uh, the old union movement, and it has to change. What will change it? I don't know. This this uh, rebellion of the teachers all over the country is interesting. Um, <clears throat> Mr. Fraser, our historian that was on this morning, <clears throat> was talking about um, uh, the parallels, and it's something I, obviously I talk about all the time. Between, um, but what's what went on in, in Nazi Germany and what's going on in this country now is this whole idea of uh, we have our own tin pot Fuhrer here uh, and his uh, gang of uh, of uh, misfits and um, you know scramblers to the top and ass kissers in Trump, just like the Nazis who uh, were in it for the money themselves anyhow, just like Trump's people are, but. Um, <clears throat> This rise of populism all over the country and this Nazism and the disappearance, this is what happened before the Nazis, and this is one of the reasons the Nazis got popular in Germany, was the disappearance of the middle class. Money became worthless. Uh, their titles and their professions all became worthless. Basically, you had a lot of rich industrialists and people who were at the top for political reasons, and everybody else had slipped into a kind of um, 
poverty or and the workers who are either out of work or being paid not even enough to eat. This is happening more and more and more in this country. There's been a trend in the last, um, <clears throat> I think, several months or a year where there are more people uh, working in this country now. Uh, there's, uh, there are more uh, jobs available. There are more people filling these jobs. I don't know if the salaries are any better. They're probably worse. In other words, you could buy, even if you have a job now and you didn't have one before, there's less you can buy with it now because the prices have gone so high. But um, <clears throat> I don't know what the reason for this is. It could be things that Obama put into place. It could be the anticipation, actually, of the tax cuts the Republicans uh, passed and Trump signed, that corporations are hiring more people. I don't really know what's going on, except that there is less unemployment now than there was, all kinds of trends and reasons for this. But uh, what you see all over the world and what you see uh, and what you see happening in this country, uh, it depends who the scapegoat is, is this rise of populism and the same old people doing the same old thing. Uh, I don't think I have time to go through this whole article, but there was an article in the, uh, in the New York Times the other day. <clears throat> no, not the other day. It was about two weeks ago. By the way, I was away for a couple of weeks in Maine on vacation, and um, we played a, a rebroadcast last week. So thanks to those people who got in touch with me about that. And uh, today is uh, live. Today is the uh, return of the show. And anyhow, the title of this article, and I don't know how much of it is I can get into, but it because it represents so much of what's going on all over the world. And it's so depressing in its own way because history keeps repeating itself all the time. It's almost as if it's impossible not to. Um, Fury in Germany as rap duo with anti-Jewish lyrics gets award. <clears throat> in Germany's usually popular hip-hop music scene, one of the biggest albums of the past year was from two trash-talking rappers who rhymed about their prowess in bed and in the weight room and about violently dominating their opponents. <clears throat> The album has racked up sales, but it has also attracted a different sort of attention. In one song, the pair boast about how their bodies are more defined than Auschwitz prisoners. Right? This is in rap lyrics <clears throat> of uh, the most popular rap group in um, hip-hop group in, um, in Germany. In another, they vow to, quote, make another Holocaust show up with a Molotov. Yeah, I mean, this is a combination of ignorance and insensitivity and uh, sadism, right? And this is the element that uh, was there in the 1920s and 30s in Germany. Widespread condemnation turned into an uproar last week since the rappers Farid Bang and Koliga, <clears throat> one of whom is Muslim, the other one is a convert to, to Islam, uh, won the Echo Award for the best hip-hop album in Germany, at Germany's equivalent of the Grammys on April 12th. <coughs> the lead singer of the country's preeminent punk rock band objected to the award from the stage that, uh, that same night. In principle, he said, I consider provocation a good thing. This is a punk rock. This is not the hip-hop people I was talking about just before. Campino is the name of the uh, punk rock band. Um, the lead singer, and his name is Campino, of the Toten Hosen, which I believe means the dead pants. <laughs> but I'm not, uh, my German is uh, from Yiddish, so I have no idea. The Toten, T-O-T-E-N, Hosen, maybe the dead pants, 
said, but we need to differentiate between art as a stylistic device or a form of provocation that only serves to destroy and ostracize others. Uh, other winners are returning their prizes. In other words, there's a revolt going on in the music industry and, and the business and among uh, a lot of rock groups in Germany. Uh, they're turning back their awards from the, from, this is like the Grammys here, right? They're turning back their awards. And um, the foreign minister of Germany posting on Twitter said, um, Heiko Maas, his name is, so he wrote, anti-Semitic provocations do not deserve awards. They're simply disgusting. And he noted the unfortunate, and he also noted the unfortunate timing of the ceremony. April 12th is a day of worldwide solemnity because it was Holocaust Remembrance Day. So on this day, which I suppose was a coincidence, uh, the uh, National um, Music Awards group, whatever it is, presented an award to these um, these bigots and these anti-Semites. Um, the country's recording industry association had criticized the lyrics but defended its choice of the awards in the name of artistic freedom. Nominations, they said, are based on popularity and rankings on uh, music charts, not on artistic merit. Well, you know, popularity. Look who's popular in this country. This sleazy, fraudulent, um, vicious son of a bitch and his gangster family and his gangster crew, the president. That's, he's popular. He's popular, right? There are people who are popular in this country who are nasty, stupid, illiterate, insane, vicious. Popularity. Who was popular in Germany in 1933? Who won the popular vote? Adolf Hitler. Popularity. What does popularity mean? Anyhow, uh, <clears throat> beyond the resentment over the award, the episode, this episode of the awards has also provoked soul-searching uh, in Germany about incitement in art and the extent of anti-Jewish sentiment in German hip-hop in particular. The most troubling, many believe, is what it says about the rise in anti-Semitism among young people in Germany. Can't you see this history is swimming again before your eyes, right? And the millions of impressionable rap fans who are generations removed from the horrors of Nazi rule. Germany's attempts to atone for the evils of its past while confronting the troubles of its present is its never-ending preoccupation. <clears throat> Sorry. On Wednesday, in response to a video showing a man in Berlin wearing a Jewish skullcap being attacked by a group of young men speaking Arabic, Chancellor Angela Merkel vowed to commit her government to fighting anti-Semitism relentlessly and with resolve. Right. Quote, this fight against such anti-Semitic excesses must be won, Ms. Merkel said. Turns out the victim uh, in this video who is being beat up, who is wearing a skullcap, and who is being beat up by other uh, men who were um, Muslim, who were speaking Arabic. The victim in the video turned out not to be Jewish. He was an Arab Israeli who said he was trying to prove to a friend that he could wear a skullcap in Germany without being hassled. So I guess he found out about that. The objectionable lyrics in the winning album, titled Young, Brutal, Good-Looking Three, <laughs> do not explicitly deny the mass slaughter of some six million Jews by the Nazis, nor do they specifically incite hatred of Jews, both of which would have made them illegal under Germany's strict laws banning Holocaust denial. These two um, hip-hop rappers, whatever, I'm confusing my terms, am I? I don't know. It's all the same to me. 
Kaliga and Farid Bang did not respond to requests for comment, supposedly from the New York Times. On the night of the ceremony, Kaliga replied to criticism by saying, I don't, want make a politi- I don't want to make a political debate out of this and invited anyone who wanted to discuss it, anyone who wanted to discuss it to approach him at the after party. I'm sure everybody got a chance to do that, <laughs> right? <clears throat> In the past, they have defended their lyrics as art and exaggeration. On Facebook last month, Fareed Bang uh, apologized to Esther Bejarano, a 93-year-old singer and Auschwitz survivor who had spoken out about the lyrics. Both men have offered to let Jews come to their concerts for free forever. They can come there forever. As proof, they said that they bore no hatred. But it's not just personal hatred on their part. I don't know how much personal hatred they have for Jews, these people. It's always, the, and it's the same thing in this country, too. How many of the people who are anti-Semitic here or in parts of Eastern Europe or in Russia, uh, which is happening now, um, and, uh, and uh, in Germany now, do they even know any Jews? Do they have anything to do with Jews at all? This is kind of a, uh, a historical, cultural, um, something in their DNA. They don't even know. They're just repeating things that other people repeated to them who, were, who heard it from other people who repeated it. These, these kinds of, um, this kind of discrimination and uh, fascism and this kind of scapegoating is very often based on nothing, nothing but uh, mythology and history that's not even real. Anyhow, um, but uh, let's see. Jacob Baer, a researcher at the Hans Bockler Foundation, focusing on anti-Semitism in German rap music, called the lyrics despicable and said they scorned the victims of Auschwitz. He noted that some of Kaliga's other songs and music videos promoted conspiracy theories and the message that the world, quote, the world is in control of evil and the evil is marked as Jewish. This same thing all over again. Unbelievable, right? That that, That there's a Jewish cabal that controls uh, not just the evil in the world, but controls all the money in the world. If I wish there fucking was a Jewish cabal that controlled all the money in the world because I would apply for it somewhere. Where do I go? I'm Jewish. Why am I not getting my cut? If the Jews control all the money in the world, why is it that we have to worry about what we buy for uh, groceries every week at home? I don't know. I don't understand this. It's not fair. Anyhow, um, here, there's a music video uh, that Kaliga did. And it's a, a track called Apocalypse. Uh, listen to this. A banker in a London office tower is shown controlling the evil forces in the world and wearing a Star of David ring. So he can invite all the Jews he wants forever free to his concerts. The man is an anti-Semite of the worst sort and promoting this kind of thing among uh, young Germans all the time. Um, let's see. After a final showdown between good and evil, evil being the Jews, right, as many as there are even left in Germany, and there are some. And that's going to talk about that in a little while. Kaliga, a 33-year-old con- convert to Islam, whose real name is Felix Bloom, raps, quote, Muslims, Christians, and Buddhists live together in peace, pointedly not mentioning Jews. Uh, and, you know, um, allegations of anti-Semitism, more and more, let's see, one song by the rapper Haftbeffel mentions, mentions a conspiracy theory about the Rothschilds, Jesus, uh, a Jewish banking family, and the video for another features images of Orthodox Jews carrying suitcases of money and diamonds over the lyrics, money, money, rich. 
Uh, also, the lyrics are, guess what? They're homophobic and degrading to women. What do I have to, to rap and hip-hop music here? Is it still popular where they call women bitches and uh, some of it is anti-Semitic too? And uh, anyhow, um, <clears throat> and uh, the, the article goes on to uh, mention that, um, uh, that uh, anti-Semitism is vastly on the rise in Germany again. Um, let's see. Um, children in German schoolyards casually toss about phrases such as, quote, you Jew, in a defamatory way. As an insult, they reinforce, they reinforce stereotypes about Jews, such as saying, this is children in Germany, right? Don't be such a Jew when trying to convince someone to lend some change. They don't even know any Jews. Where does this come from? What is wrong with Germans? And it's happening in Eastern Europe. It's happening in Russia. It happens in this country, right? And uh, this, is, this is happening all over culturally in Germany. And this rap stuff is, getting, is making it even worse. Um, it's amazing for me to hear such things. But it's not so amazing at all when you think about it. It's just standard operating procedure for the mass of human beings, obviously. Ignorance, especially of history and the history of the world and the history of one's own country or culture, is really the norm, right? It's the norm. It's obviously uh, the majority in, every, in all these places, as in Germany again. They find it much easier to forget uh, the sins that they committed uh, than the minority against whom these sins were committed. Uh, it's... Um, it's the minority on the receiving end that has cause to remember these things. I mean, it's amazing uh, that uh, that people are, are able to indulge in such denial. I mean, denial is, uh, is uh, and forgetting, it's a universal thing, right? Everybody does this. It's a defense against all sorts of emotional pain. So why shouldn't it, like any other defense, like addictive behavior or what, projection or narcissism, wouldn't, why shouldn't it manifest itself as a cultural trend or a mass movement? Because really, politics and culture, when you think about it in general, has its roots in the individual mind. I mean, um, I read the other day that, uh, so, so everybody denies things all the time. We all do, you do, I do. And then you put it all together, um, cultures and societies and whole countries are capable of denial, Right. And one last thing is I read the other day in another article that there's 100,000 Jews living in Berlin. I have to say I'm amazed to hear this. I guess, uh, I, why? <laughs> I don't understand. So even the near descendants of the victims of one of the worst crimes in, uh, of history, you know, the Holocaust, they can, they're subject to denial too. They can fool themselves into believing that once lightning struck, it could never strike again in the same place, in the same way. Uh, this new, which is not new at all, anti-Semitism in Germany, which is so stupidly, predictably mundane as it is with the Jews and the money and all this. Uh, this time, we have a kind of a perfect storm in Germany, what's happening there. It's the worst of white Christian culture and history and the worst of Islamic culture in the same place. It's a place where the violent idiocy of the two cultures can find common ground. I don't know. It's, it's easy to say this, of course. I wasn't born in Germany, and I didn't go to school there, and I don't have my profession there or my business. There's reasons why people don't leave a place. But if it was possible to imagine moving myself and my family out of this country, I would do, do it as soon as I could.
This is Mike Fader, <laughs> and, uh, back from my vacation in Maine. I'll tell you all about my trip to Maine next week. Thanks for listening, um, as always, and uh, I'll uh, talk to you next week. Well, it's all.